Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good. You guys got a sleeping day? That's clutch. That's awesome. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And as you saw in the video, this morning is going to be a morning of deep wrestling, a morning uh, of harsh truth, a tough reality. And I woke up this morning understanding the weight of what this morning's message means. When, uh, when me and my wife were, uh, when I was looking to uh, get engaged to my wife, I, I went to this jeweler uh, and to seek out this ring and my wife had gone through Pinterest and like she basically, our entire wedding was already planned in Pinterest and she had this ring that she really wanted that I could propose to her with. Again, it was like no surprises, right? And so I go to this jeweler and I was like, man, and I saw it. It's like an Australian opal with diamonds around it. And I'm like, okay, that's the one. And I asked the jeweler, I was like, hey, can, can I see that one right there? And he goes, all right, just wait one second. And he pulls out a felt black cloth and he puts it on the table. And then he places the ring on top of the black cloth. Now, why would he do that? Because in the process, if there was no black background, that ring would have just faded into the bright light of the jewelry case. The black backdrop is what made that ring pop off the surface. And this morning, what we're going to be basically diving into, before we get to that ring that shows up on the counter, we have to come to the reality of the black felt surface on which it overlays, that being sin. Are you guys with me? So we're going to be diving in to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray. Verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? These Pharisees had come and they presented this woman caught in adultery. She is completely naked in this crowd of her peers, caught, shamed. And then they say in the law of Moses that we are to stone her, these large stones. This isn't but throwing pebbles. This is large, brick-sized and above stones that they would pelt her with. What would Jesus' response be? They were saying this to him, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, 
Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down into the ground and wrote. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left there alone. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we just come before you. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this morning. God, a morning that you set aside before the beginning of time, God, that we would wrestle with the reality of who we are before a holy God. Father, we all come with sin. Jesus, I just pray, God, for this morning that we would come to the full reality and weight of it, that we'd see it for what it is, that we'd see who we are in comparison to a holy, perfect, mighty God. I pray that we would be honest, that we'd be real this morning. God, and although it is wrestling, God, it is necessary wrestling to enjoy the beauty of what you have for us tonight. God, I pray that for these next couple moments, we could just focus our hearts on a tough reality. God, we love you, and we give you all these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus in Jerusalem teaching the Pharisees and the teachers have placed a trap for Jesus. That they have found this woman caught in adultery and they begin to drag her through the street naked before Jesus. And they say, Jesus, it is according to the law of Moses that we stone this woman to death. What say you? And the trick is this, that according to the law and Roman rule of the day that the Jews were not actually allowed to put anyone to death. Only the Romans were. This is why the Jews, when they go to kill Jesus, they bring Jesus before the Romans to get permission first. So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, what the Pharisees and Sadducees would do, they would go to Rome and go, see, he's breaking the law. But then if he says, no, uh, we're not gonna stone her, they're gonna say, look, he's, he's not God's chosen one. He's breaking the law of Moses. They think they've got Jesus in this trap. And Jesus ends up choosing the law of Moses on the side of God, but in a way they did not expect. In verse six, they were saying to this, testing him so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down into the ground and wrote with his finger, but they persisted asking him. And he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the one to cast the stone. Jesus siding with the law of Moses. Okay, if that's what you want to do, and the law of Moses does say that is what is required, fine. If you can cast perfect judgment on this woman because you indeed have to be perfect, then let it fly. And we see these men with these rocks in hands begin to look at each other. Almost like, are you gonna throw first? Are you gonna throw first? I know the stuff that I have in my closet. I have no right to throw first. But I love Jesus. In a situation that they're looking to trap him and to get him up against a wall, he calmly begins to write in the ground. Now it's speculated on what it is that Jesus is writing. It doesn't tell us in the text. 
But I think there's a beautiful piece to our imagination that God likes to use in order for us to see the beauty of what is happening here, but also the harsh reality of what Jesus is possibly bringing to light. Because what he's writing in the ground has to be so in the face of the Pharisees that would cause them, these men who are just hell-bent on killing Jesus, What could cause these men who are 100% sold out for the destruction of this man to begin dropping rocks? I wonder if in the course of this moment, Jesus begins riding in the ground and he looks at the oldest Pharisee first. And in the ground, he writes a very detailed, specific sin that that older gentleman had committed. And that oldest man drops his rock realizing I'm condemned and he walks away. And then Jesus looks at the next guy next to him and writes in the ground again, uh, adulterer. And that Pharisee sees it, realizing it's about him, drops his rock and walks away, so on and so forth. As these men are coming to the full reality of who they are before a holy God. And then Jesus in this moment proclaiming himself to be the light, the ultimate revealer of the things that go on. We had mentioned it in in night one that God is light and there is truth and in that truth exposing happens. And then in John 8 verse 21 He says, you will seek me and die of your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. See, the whole point of the Pharisees, they were trying to seek him out in order to get him to trap him. What Jesus is saying, you will continue to seek after the Messiah figure you have pictured in your mind. See, the Pharisees were so upset because they had this false view of who they thought the Messiah was going to be. They thought the Messiah was going to show up to the scene and be that of a military savior who was going to save them from the rulership of Rome that had been oppressing them for so long. But Jesus didn't come to break physical chains. He came to break eternal spiritual chains. And these Pharisees are upset and when Jesus is saying, you're going to seek me out, but you're seeking the wrong me. You're not going to find me. And as a result of your sin, you are going to die and you will not see me. So what is sin? Why is it such a big deal? What's the problem with it anyways? And I know so often, I mean, when I grew up in in the church, sin, it was always described to me like this archery term, right, in the medieval times. How many of you have done archery this week? Anybody? How many of you do archery today? It's open. I think I'm going to take my girls so they might shoot someone, so just be careful. But sin began, not began, it always was, but in the medieval times kind of got this archery term that when an archer would pull back the arrow on his bow and let it fly and it would miss the bullseye, They called it sin, meaning that you missed your mark. You didn't hit it dead center. But the truth of what exactly sin is, is the fact that sin is eternity altering. 
And we need to understand the depths of it, the depths of its destruction, the depths of its infection of every living thing. That includes you and that includes me. I hope you don't hear this, that this is me telling sin onto you. This is me talking about the reality of sin on all of humanity. You and me. So where did sin originate? We looked at it in the beginning in the Garden of Eden that was displayed in the opener. Where Adam and Eve have been given just one disclaimer to the kingdom of God. They've been given everything. Think about it. You can ride as many lions as you want. Like, that's what I would be doing. Like, they could go and eat of any tree of the garden. They had everything at their fingertips. Everything. God was not holding back. He was not withholding from them. He was blessing them with every good and perfect gift that he created. And yet, here comes the serpent on the snake and the snake of the on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he begins to ask this question of Eve saying, did God really say, do not eat of the tree? And Eve begins to, begins to look at this fruit and it says it was delighting to the eyes almost to make men or women wise. All of a sudden, what God was the dictator of truth. Now all of a sudden, Eve is saying, no, 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 I'm gonna start dictating truth. What's true for me? It's true for me that that apple looks good. It's true for me that that looks like it could make me wise and she begins to listen to these untrue ideas that are taking root in her heart. And these unrealities that she begins to give herself to breed action and she takes from the fruit and Adam in passivity left standing there. And we see that she begins to eat of the fruit and hand it to Adam and he eats. Now why is this such a big deal? Because in this moment they've committed cosmic treason. They've decided that God, you are not the arbiter of truth. You do not know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. I get to play God. It's in a sense an action of trying to overthrow the kingdom of God, trying to dethrone God, saying I am the one who gets to dictate how life works. And thus sin enters the world. And sin does a few things. Sin separates creation from its creator. We see that Adam and Eve, when they eat of the fruit, what happens? They end up running and hiding. Think about it. They have been walking with God in the cool of the day in the midst of the garden. They got to see God with their own eyes for who he truly is. Now, as a result of sin, they hide. They cannot be in his perfect, holy presence anymore. They are separated from their creator. Not only that, they are separated from each other. We watched the first ever blame game in the history of humanity happen in Genesis chapter three. Where Adam looks at God and then points at Eve and said, no, 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 it was the woman you gave me. That's what caused this whole problem. And then Eve going, no, 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 it was the serpent in the garden. He, he was whispering sweet nothings in my ear. 
You see, all of a sudden, what was a perfect relationship of humanity with one another is permanently severed. And we see that severing and the fruit of that even today. Fights, wars, you can't even get on social media without getting canceled for saying the simplest thing. We just see the relationships between people absolutely destroyed. I see this in my own family. My brother Daniel, I haven't seen him in seven years. Completely disowned my family, said, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. I'm out. And I have to lay and sit and watch the result of sin lay waste to my own family. Maybe you've experienced this. Relational sin in the destruction of relationships. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from each other. And sin produces separation in creation. We see this what once once perfect in creation, humanity and creation dwelling in harmony with each other. And now we have disasters, we have chaos, we have hurricanes, we have earthquakes, we have fires, we have this whole pain that has entered into the world. We have separation in, in sickness and unhealth and cancer and pain and grief. We see all of this enter into the very fabric of creation and it infects everything now I don't know about you when I was first reading the creation account I'm like time out hold the phone what's the deal with the tree there in the first place God why'd you put the tree there why just not have it even exist then this would have never happened God put the tree there on purpose and for a purpose. Because God doesn't, didn't just create Adam and Eve to just love him because they had to. He creates the tree as a display that they might choose and prove that, no, 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 I'm going to choose you over everything else. God didn't create you as a robot to just mindlessly go around and have to love him by force, that's not love. Like if I was like to my wife, Grace, you have to love me, you have no choice, that's not love, that's force. God places the tree in the garden that Adam and Eve might have an opportunity each and every day to say, you know what, God, you're God, I am not, I choose to love you with all that I am, but that's not what they do. They say, you know what, God, I'm choosing not to choose you, not to show you as true, not to honor you as God. I'm going to try to dethrone you. And thus, sin enters the world. And Romans 5, 12 through 14 says this, therefore, just as though one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all of mankind, that's you and that is me since this moment in Genesis 3, because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses and even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam. Who is a type of him who has come? What Paul is saying in Romans is that sin from this moment has infected every human being. That's you and that's me. That you are marked, stained, 
bound, enslaved to sin. And we don't need a a college professor, an in-depth study to even see the fruits of this. Even at an early age, my daughters are three and two. No one taught my youngest daughter how to bite like nobody's business on her older sister's leg. No one taught my girls how to throw a tantrum in the middle of Target. It's the worst. No one taught them how to do that. Just last month, last month, my daughter pushes her little sister in the middle of the living room. Me and my wife see this with our own eyes. And we look at Salem and go, Salem, did you push your sister? And she goes, no. I'm like, you want to try again? Like, I just saw this happen. No one taught Selah how to lie. No one taught Sonny how to bite. No one taught my daughters how to disobey mom and dad. That's natural. And we see the sin begin to inhabit their very living being. Sin inhabits you and me. And this is confirmed in scripture, the text that we've already proclaimed as the very words of God. And the very words of God confirm this. David, who is called a man after God's own heart, admits in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Before I had even took a breath, I was bound by sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. All, not some, not most, not all except that good person over there. No, all have sinned. In 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you came up this week saying, no, 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 I'm a good person. I, I'm fine. What God's word would tell us is, no, 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 that is a lie. That we are all guilty, we are all bound by sin. And then in verse 10 of 1 John, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. And the word is not in us. And it continues in Romans 10, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. I hear this argument, and maybe you hear this argument with truth all the time. Well, Matt, why do bad things happen to good people? And I would contend, based on the truth of God's word, that only one bad thing has happened to the only good person that ever existed. God's definition of good is perfect. God's definition of good is holy, set apart, untouched by sin. Only one person walked the earth who could claim those attributes to himself, and that's Jesus Christ. And he died. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's been only one good person to walk the face of this planet, and he was killed. We are not good. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And it says, by nature, we are children of wrath. So what does this mean that you and I are marked by sin, enslaved by sin, humanity cannot escape sin, that there's nothing you could do and there's nothing I could do? What is and why is this the way that it is? Why? Because God is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. And he cannot be in the presence of sin. In Isaiah, verse six, Isaiah chapter six, we see a perfect depiction of this. Isaiah, a prophet, has this vision of him going before the throne room of God. And I want you to picture this. Because I think some of us, we view God as this like long hair, sash sash wearing, lamb petting, felt board Jesus. But this is the God that we see in Isaiah 6. Listen, listen with your ears. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted and the train of his robe filling the whole temple. Isaiah seeing God with his eyes and the train of his robe. I know for us we're like, that's weird. That just seems like a long piece of cloth. But in this day, the train of a king's robe demonstrated what they were in authority over. The longer the robe, the bigger the command that that individual had as king. God's robe is filling the entire temple, thus communicating he rules over it all. Seraphim stood over him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now it's fascinating to me And I don't think these angels in heaven just simply like to put the word holy on repeat just for kicks. See, God in himself is holy. But it goes much farther than that in the text. See, he's not just, okay, holy being meaning what we might have heard before set apart. It's not that God is just holy. It's not that he just has authority and is set apart. It's not that he's just holy holy, holy. It's not that he is even the best depiction of what holiness is and has the most authority. He is holy, holy, holy. In that, in the text, that repetition three times communicates that he in himself is perfect holiness. That he is the standard, that nothing can come close, that nothing can even compare to who God is. That in him there is no blemish, there is no stain. Every judgment, every word is right. That he has not some authority, but all authority. And I want us to look at, I want you to listen to Isaiah's response when he comes into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah realizes, I am unfit to be in the presence of God. I have done nothing to grant the favor of God. I shouldn't even be standing here right now. I am a dead man standing in the presence before God, for I am marked by sin. God is is set apart, perfect, without blemish, meaning I cannot, you cannot, we cannot stand in the presence of God if we ourselves are stained by sin. That's why. 
But what does sin do to us eternally? In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, the original language, that word death is actually a double meaning. It says, die, die, in the original language. For the wages of sin is die, die. Not only death physically that we experience when we go to funerals or we have loved ones pass away, but it's this eternal death, eternal separation from God that sin not only ends our lives physically, we are now destined to spend an eternity apart from God apart from joy, apart from love, apart from fullness, apart from abundance, that the wages of sin cost you and cost me everything. And there's nothing we can do about it. I wanna give an example to what I'm trying to communicate. So sin infecting every human being, sin infecting you and infecting me, for he is perfect and we are not. Though we've been born into sin from the seed of Adam since the beginning and sin has infested and infected every living thing. And so, thus meaning that we are marked by sin. That we had this false preconceived notion that, man, I was, I was born clean, but scripture and the truth would say I was born and bound, stained to the weight and the power of sin that I, based on my own merit, am marked and stained by sin. And so often, I don't know about you, but I, well, I'll just become a good person. I'll just serve in the areas that I need to serve and I'll work my way to salvation. In other words, I'm gonna try to clean myself off, but what's the problem? See, my hands are stained. So in the process of trying to merely try to clean myself off and I'm trying to wipe it off, what ends up happening? It just continues to spread. You see, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. I can't wash myself off with an array of good deeds. I can't fix this by trying to do more or be more or pursue something else. That I'm stained. That you and I, this is our reality. So what do we need? In John chapter 9, we see the Pharisees ask the question of when Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus spits on the ground and takes it out of the mud and puts it on this blind man's eyes and he can see. And the Pharisees ask this question in verse 16 of John chapter nine. It says this, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Jesus. And these Pharisees realizing, how can he do this unless he is not marked by the power of sin? 
And then even in verse 33, the man's been healed and they put this healed man on trial going, how could you see? We knew you were blind. What is going on? Who has healed you? And in verse 33, this man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man comes to the conclusion that if Jesus was marked like you and I are marked, there's no way he could be doing what he is doing. There's no way he could make the blind see Guys, Jesus is the only one from cover to cover. He is the only one who can take stains, can take your bondage, can take your sin, can take your destruction and exchange it for his life. There's nothing you can do. Look at me. There's nothing you on your own merit, power that you can do. One has to come. One unstained by sin, untouched by sin, and who could bear the full weight of sin, that being death in and of itself. Only one, and that's Jesus Christ. Do you see your need for a savior in this moment? Do you see it? Because I don't know about you, it it puts me at a point of desperation saying, God, please. So where are you at with sin? You have it, I have it. We can be honest. In your circles, when you're talking about it, you can be honest for everyone in that circle struggles with it. You're not the only one. I think one of the greatest lies of sin is looking and go, keep it hidden. No one needs to know about that. Struggle with it by yourself. Jesus is called the light of the world. Bring that into light and let grace cover it. Bring it into light and let truth expose it for what it is. Let's be honest this morning, can we? Can we be honest? Can we be real? We didn't come up this week to waste time and suddenly try to continue to try to clean ourselves off or to put up a facade that we have it all together. The truth of you and I, the reality is you need Jesus and I need Jesus. We just sang it. Those aren't words we put up on a screen and put to a melody because they sound awesome. We sing it because it's a cry of our hearts. My hope is that this morning you would see and feel the very real reality that you and I are in desperate need of a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you. God, and we just cry out that we need you. God, no one is good, not even one. Nothing we could do merits favor. Jesus, we need a savior to pay the full weight, God. Lord, I just pray for these students, counselors, youth pastors, God, I pray we'd be honest. We'd be real with where we're at. We'd be honest what's going on in our lives. Even in the video, the vices and the fish hooks that we run to, God, you want more for our lives. Spirit, I pray that you would fill us with boldness and a courageous curiosity, God, to be honest. God, we love you, and we give you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.